God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this morning. We are wrapping up our series on Second Chronicles today. Second Chronicles is a, a neglected book in the Bible. Most of us don't have much familiarity with it. It's a book that's very hopeful. It's a book that I'm convinced is written to a tired people in order to give them uh, hope for the future and guidance for the d- today. So the title for this sermon is Hope for Tired Christians. I'm going to draw four points from this passage. I think they'll fall neat, uh, very obvious for us. Two points are going to be about the character of God, and two points are going to be guiding, uh, guiding principles for you and me. Two things that are objectively true, is things that the Bible tells us are true about God, and two things will be aspirational, two things that we can uh, hopefully be true for, for us. And uh, two points will come from the first section of the chapter, which is verses 12 through 17, and two principles will come from uh, the final verses, verses 18 through 21. I think there should be a paragraph break in there, but it's not in your service leaflet, so you can just take note of that uh, when we get there. So two characteristics about God, two characteristics that can be true and ought to be true for you and me, all of which are especially applicable to tired Christians. Ready? Let's go. First characteristic that I see here that is offered by way of encouragement to tired Christians is that God is faithful. I see this in verse 14 of the, serv- of, of the reading. This is Solomon offering a prayer of dedication in the temple. If you recall from our past weeks, we've seen the temple being planned for and then built and then the opening worship. And here's really the high point of the book of Chronicles. It's Solomon's prayer of dedication. So he's standing in front of the people of God, dedicating the temple to the worship of God. And this is what he says. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. And that's a phrase that is often found in the Bible. You find that in any number of places. Oh God, there is no God like you. And the author will list some uh, superlative about God. You are holy, you are mighty, you are creative, etc. But the most common superlative that God is given uh, that follows this statement, there is no God like you, is that you are a faithful God. You are a covenant-keeping God. And that is exactly what we find here. Verse 14, there is no God like you in heaven on earth, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your hearts. And notice how the author reiterates this phrase. He's reassuring us of God's faithfulness to his people. I find this in verse 15 as the same sentiment is repeated. You have kept what you're with your, uh, you have kept what you declared to, uh, to David. So what he said he kept, uh, what he declared he kept. Sorry for that little stumble. What God declared he kept. Verse, as the passage continues, what you spoke with your mouth, your hands fulfilled. In other words, three times in three different ways, the author is telling what God says he does, he will do. God is faithful. He perseveres. And uh, if You note in this passage, it goes from the past tense of what God has done in the past. What he said, he did. The words he spoke, his hands fulfilled. It moves to a hopeful promise. And I find this in verse 16. Now therefore, O God of Israel, keep. Notice the change of tense. A hopeful prayer. Keep what you have promised. 
God is faithful. I want to think a moment for that, uh, with you about that word faithful. It's an often used but ill-defined word in the Christian faith. When we think of faithfulness, we usually think of belief. In other words, do you believe in Santa Claus? Yes, I believe in Santa Claus. Do you believe the earth is round? Yes, I believe. We think of belief in terms of giving mental assent. Yes, that makes sense to me. I believe it's true. That's not exactly, that's part of faith, but really when the Bible talks about faith, what it's really implying is perseverance or steadfastness, or, or faithfulness. Remember the Timex watch? I'm dating myself. Timex takes a lick and keeps on ticking. That's an example of a faithfulness, of perseverance. Another example would be the uh, uh, Ernest Shackleton. You know the story of Ernest Shackleton? He was the captain of the ship Endurance. He was an Antarctic explorer. And his ship the, was encased in ice. He was, he was trying to make it to the South Pole. This is in the early 1900s. His ship, the Endurance, became encased in ice, and the ice flows just crushed the ship, and he and his crew had to abandon, abandon ship. And that name of the boat, Endurance, was strangely prophetic because for the next year, Shackleton led his crew over the ice flows back to safety, uh, not losing a single soul. And this is the accolade that was given to Shackleton. For scientific leadership, give me Scott, another Antarctic explorer. For swift and efficient travel, give me Edmondson, another explorer. But when you are in a hopeless situation, when there seems to be no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. (laughs) Because he was tenacious, persevering. He had no quit. And that is a great definition of the biblical idea of faith. Tenacity, perseverance, faithfulness. And usually we think appropriately, we think of faith as being applied to our faith in God. That's a very important aspect of the Christian life, no doubt. But here, it's God's faithfulness to his people. God is tenacious. He perseveres. He doesn't quit on those he calls his own. And that is something that the tired people of God need to hear, that God doesn't quit on his people. Think about this analogy. Imagine a father walking over a a precipice with a child. Why the father has his child near a precipice? We don't know, but there he is. The child slips and falls. Father reached down and grabs the child. Now, the child's safety depends not upon the grip of the child, but on the grip of the father. Certainly, the child has to do his part. The child needs to grip. But ultimately, the safety of the child doesn't depend on the strength of the child's grip. It depends on the strength of the father's grip. And this passage is simply telling us that God is tenacious. He is faithful. Have you ever felt in your tiredness that you just want to quit? Toss in the towel. Well, the good news for tired people is that that God doesn't quit on you. We move to our second point. The steadfastness of God. We move from the steadfastness of God, an an objective truth, to an inspirational, something that 
can be, ought to be true for you and me. And that is that just as God is faithful and perseveres, so ought the people of God to be faithful and disappear. I wonder if you note in as the, tr- the passage transitioned uh, from what God had done in the past, he kept his promises in the past, to what God will hopefully keep his promises in the future, there was a big if. There was a conditional statement. Now, therefore, this is in verse 16. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him, saying, you shall lack a man to sit on your throne. Here we have it, the big if. If only your sons pay close attention to their ways to walk in my laws, which you have, uh, as, as David has walked before me. Do you see the conditional statement? I think the tired people of God need to be mindful of the conditional statement here. And it's a theme that is found throughout the Bible, that God's eyes are on the righteous, that God's eyes pay attention, that he knows the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked he doesn't know, that his eyes, in some special way, are on the tired people of God who choose to do the right thing. Now, let's, we're, we're, I'm going to put a little bit of asterisk on that because we shouldn't have too much faith in our ability to do the right thing. We'll get to that point later. But let's not miss the point here that God tells his people that he will be with them if they acknowledge him, if they walk in his ways. I think the tired people of God, tired Christians, need to be reminded that their choices matter. I've heard it said that if a person can make it through their middle years with their discipline intact, there is nothing they cannot do. I'm now 47 and I'm well into my middle years and I'm beginning to appreciate the truth of that sentiment. Because the middle years are supremely tiring years. Demands are high. We have more responsibilities to keep us awake. We have more disappointments to navigate. And we get tired. And it's easy for tired people to cut corners. I know I have, and I'm sure you have as well. And this passage is simply telling us this initial word of grace that God perseveres with his tired people comes with a word of obligation. Now you, tired people of God, persevere with him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It matters when tired Christians set the alarm, get up while the house is still quiet for a few minutes of prayer. It matters. It matters when tired Christians frustrated with their spouse give it one more shot. It matters. It matters when tired Christians who are tired of praying pray one more time. It matters when tired Christians who, despite their tiredness, pay attention to their ways, just as this passage says. Now, as we move on to our third point, so we've observed a principle about God. He perseveres. A guiding principle for us, so ought we to persevere. I want you to note a change of tone. In verse 18, our first half was very optimistic. God keeps his promises. You guys keep your promises. Everything's going to be great. Now, in verse 18, you get a little bit of a sense of a change of tone. 
It's almost as if the author knows it's actually not going to go as good as he has just described. But will God really dwell with man? Notice how he describes prayer in verse 19 and following. Oh, Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you. Throughout this passage, the, cry, the prayers of the people of God are equated to cries and for pleas. Those are words that describe a need for help or aid. It's as if the author anticipates a time when the devotion and the dedication of the people of God that's experienced as the temple is dedicated will wane. And they will not keep God's laws. They will not walk in his ways. And when they do, this glorious temple will fall by the wayside. And God's people who are gathered for worship will be scattered again. He assumes that that will occur. That their prayers of thanksgiving will one day become cries and pleas for help. It assumes failure. I was in a, a when I was in college, I was an intermittent attendee at the local uh, Anglican chapel. It's called Canterbury. And uh, the, the pastor there was named Father Bernie. I remember him distinctly. He was a bit of a Santa, Santa Claus character. And he processed the first Sunday barefoot. And it was just enough uh, kind of avant-garde for, to appeal to a bunch of college students. So when I worshipped, I'd worship at the, the Canterbury House, the, the Anglican or Episcopal House of Worship. And I developed a little bit of a friendship with Father Bernie. And I remember coming, his, uh, the chapel was right by some of my classes at, at, at Florida State. And so I stopped by every once in a while. And on one occasion, I felt a little weighed down by something I had said or done. I, I have no idea what that was. But... As this passage instructed, I had not done, I had not acknowledged God in all my ways, and I was heavy-hearted, and I stopped in the Father, talked to Father Bernie. And uh, I have no idea what I did, but I recalled what he said in order to lift the weight. And what he did was he turned me to the baptismal service, the same baptismal service that we say every Sunday, the same baptismal service that's affirmed, uh, during our confirmation and when we received new members. And he read one promise that's made during that service. And he asked me, David, pick out the most encouraging word in this sentence. So I'm going to read the promise and ask you to do the same. Pick out the encouraging word in this sentence that may help someone who's grieved and burdened by uh, past indiscretion. Here's what he said. Here's the promise in a form of a question is, will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? I said, no, I not, nothing particularly encouraging in that sentence, I don't think. And he said, well, it's the word whenever, because that's not the word if. The passage does not read, will you persevere in resisting evil, and if you fall into sin, will you repent and return? Now, this passage, that, that prayer that we promise at our baptismal service, like the passage we have in front of us, assumes that God's people are going to stumble and fall, that their devotion is going to run cold. And when they do, repent and turn to the Lord. Those are two great attributes of the people of God. 
repentance and perseverance, not one without the other. And those are two attributes that the tired Christians need to be mindful of. Persevere. Do your best. God's eyes are on the faithful. But you're not going to make it. And when you don't, so perseverance, repentance. Fourth and final characteristic in this we conclude was something Another truth about God. When the tired people of God turn to God for help, God always listens. And that's the fourth and final characteristic that I want to draw our attention to. The attentive listening of God. Verse 19. Have regard. Have regard to the prayers of your servant. Listen to their cry. Verse 20, turn your eyes towards this place. May, be they, may they be opened day and night so that you may listen. Listen to the pleas. Listen from your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Time and time again, the author draws our attention to this truth that God listens and the listening of God to the pleas of his people is one of the most helpful truths that we can find in the entire scriptures. The book of Exodus, uh, the great story of rescue and salvation begins this way. The people of God groan because of their slavery. Their cry for rescue comes to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He looks, he regards, he hears, he hears and responds, especially, especially to those who are in need. Now, as a parent, I hear a lot of words from my children. We have a phrase that we call some words red truck words or red truck stories, which comes from one of the stories that one of my children told of a, a truck that drove up our street. That was the end of the story. <laughs> it's a story with no point. And it has no relevance. And I don't listen. But there are plenty of things that do come out of my children's mouth that... But, just cause my ears to perk up whenever there's a need or whenever there's a struggle or I pay attention. Let me equate that to prayer. I know that I pray plenty of red truck prayers. God, thank you for the red trucks. Amen. Not very thoughtful, not very laudable prayers. But every once in a while, there, there's, a, there's, well, just past week or two weeks ago, uh, excuse me, Jennifer and I were praying before uh, we went to sleep, and she listed a few things that were heavy on our heart, and as she did, I just felt a little little tear trickle down my cheek because these were uh, you know, considerable um, concerns for us. That wasn't a red truck prayer. Those were a few things that were really important. A sigh. And I think what this passage is telling us 
is that Christians, we need to remember that God is especially attentive to the cries, to the pleas, to the tears, and to the sighs of his people. The encouragement we find in this passage is that the encouragement we find in this passage to cry to God for help is surpassed by God's eagerness to listen to those cries. We draw our thoughts to a conclusion. I think February is in general a tired month. I read an article in The Economist that measured the happiness of music selections from streaming devices. And would you guess that February is by far the gloomiest month? People listen to gloomy music. Maybe it's because of Valentine's Day and broken hearts, but maybe it's the long winter, but February is a, a tired month. Add to that just the tiredness of being out of our space for four months and going. By the way, I anticipate we will be back in our place of worship by March 8th. Nonetheless, it has been a tiring month. Maybe you can resonate. Tired Christians need to remember that God is faithful. He perseveres. Tired Christians need to remember our response of faithfulness to persevere with him as well. Tired Christians need to remember to cry to God when they are at the end of their rope. And tired Christians need to remember that God is especially attentive to the cries of his own, especially when they come from those who are at the end of their rope. And this is what we find in our passage. And I think it's good news for tired Christians.